get the thing straight once and for all. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Rossell Hambry intersection at 15000. Contact Los Angeles Center, two minutes northeast of the stadium intersection. Expect further clearance no later than 09 or 52 Granite. Do it one, do it twice. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the world of my weird record collection. I am Sean, the host of this podcast, obviously. I guess a little bit about me and why I'm doing this podcast might be in order for this introductory episode. Um, episode zero, if you will. Now, I have been working on this for so long that uh, literally years have gone by between the time that I started working on this podcast and the time I launched it, and uh, I often said how old I am, and I found myself having to re-record that part, so just to be safe from now on, I'm not going to say my age, so I don't have to re-record it. I'm just going to tell you, I'm a Gen Xer, I'm married to a wonderful, highly tolerant woman named Lisa, and we have a beagle named Lola, and she was born on Valentine's Day 2016. We live on the north side of Chicago, and, uh, That actually plays a big part into how this podcast was possible in the first place. After all, I found most of my weird records in Chicago. And by the way, when I say I live in Chicago, I mean actual Chicago. I'm not one of those people who says, I'm from Chicago, and then answers the follow-up question, oh yeah, which part? With Naperville or Arlington Heights. No, I live in the actual city of Chicago. And for my 9-to-5 job, I am a software engineer. Things that I do for fun include, but are not limited to, classic video games, I'm talking from the 80s and before, (laughs) website development, uh, which, yeah, I do for a living, but I also do for fun, and uh, traveling whenever Lisa and I have the time and finances. Okay, that's a lie. Sometimes we don't even have the finances, we'll still travel. (laughs) And, of course, music. And by music, I mean listening to music, recording music, playing music, writing music, just music. And because I'm a big music fan, I do have a lot of records. I by far do not have the biggest record collection, but it is decent sized. And I'm a major Beatles fan, so there are a lot of Beatles records in my collection. Uh, Not a butcher cover, though. Uh, Even though there were three quarters of a million of those things released, dealers bought them up and inflated the prices. I'm also into Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, well, mainly up through 1977, so I have a lot of their stuff on vinyl as well. Now, the thing about being a music fan and a record collector is that eventually you will get close to having all the records you're looking for. It's simply the law of diminishing returns, I guess. Uh, There's a reason that you find yourself looking for less stuff. If you don't already have a specific item for a while, that's an indication that the item you're still looking for is either rare or expensive or likely both but you still want to get more discs to spin on that turntable. And um, that's where my weird record collection comes in. Personally, I am amused by absurdity, weirdness, extremely dated signs of past times, and unintentional humor. And I found that a great place to find that kind of stuff is a certain section that most used record stores have. Records that don't fit properly in the standard categories of rock, pop, rap, R&B, jazz, country, easy listening, 
comedy, show tunes, and often not even sound effects or spoken word. One record store that I frequent calls these records unclassifiable. Another record store that I used to go to until sadly the owner passed away, that store had them filed under a tab called Rarities uh, simply because the owner didn't know what else to call the category and thankfully he didn't actually price them as if they were true rarities. Sometimes the section divider will use the designation miscellaneous. At one store I visit, the section divider simply has a bunch of question marks on it. Sure, there are some mainstream musical albums I look for by the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Doors, the Who, and sometimes more modern artists like the Tikiaki Orchestra. But whenever I visit a record store, I make sure to pay a visit to this oddball section. A section I'm just going to call Weird Records. Now, these weird records are fascinating in so many ways. First of all, they tend to be cheap. You could walk into the store with 20 bucks and walk out with a nice little stack of these goofy pieces of wax. Also, there's so much variety among weird records. There's some really off-the-beaten-path instructional records. Um, belly dancing records, for example, seem to be very plentiful. <laughs> Albums that tie in with political campaigns. Sermons. Extremely dry scientific readings, historical retrospectives, and sometimes just plain strange music. A lot of these weird records can fall into that instructional category, and in fact, some stores actually do have an instructional section. A friend recently pointed out that, really, back in the day, those kinds of records were analogous to YouTube. Nowadays, if you, say, want to learn how to play fingerstyle guitar, for example, there are countless videos up there on how to play using the Travis method. But for many years, people would likely buy a record to learn how to play fingerstyle guitar. So weird records are quite an interesting piece of pop culture history. I guess many of these records are weird in and of themselves, but as a collection, they... I have to say, are just weird. As for what made me do this podcast... Well, I'm already an experienced podcaster, and let me tell you, podcasting can be addicting. It all started with a podcast called Pie Factory Podcast, in which my friend Jim and I discuss classic arcade video games. I had already been thinking of doing a different, unrelated podcast, but when Jim asked me to co-host Pie Factory with him, I put that other idea on hold for, eh, six years. But since then, I've been doing a few other podcasts. But the My Weird Record Collection podcast... I conceived it originally as a potential book, but I never really gave it any serious thought. Never even started a rough draft. But then, my friend Jim, same Jim who created Pie Factory Podcast, told me that I should do a podcast about these weird records I've been amassing. And uh, Jim, by the way, provided me with at least one of the records that I will eventually be talking about sometime in this podcast. But when Jim suggested I do a podcast about these records, two thoughts came into mind. Number one... Sounds like a pretty cool idea. Number two, oh, for Pete's sake, you jerk, you gave me another project I had to take on, on top of the other podcasts I do, plus my music, plus goodness knows what else. The way I'm approaching this podcast is to hopefully record a bunch of episodes at a time, and then release them every month. Also, there will be no profane language in this podcast. Personally, I have zero cares whatsoever about profanity. To me, it's just words. It's the intent behind the words that you need to be concerned about. But I know that others can be sensitive to harsh words, and I do not want to alienate possible listeners, so in terms of language, I'm keeping this podcast clean. 
if a record I'm discussing for some reason necessitates that I use profanity, I will bleep the profanity. Now, getting back to these crazy discs I've been collecting, another cool thing about weird records is because they're primarily spoken word, you don't need to worry about having the most amazing audiophile sound system to play them on. Having said that, given that this podcast really, in a way, is about record collecting, a frequent feature of this podcast will be that I give you some advice regarding the care and feeding of your record collection. So for this episode, in my, uh, what am I going to call it, Sean's Record Collecting Tips segment, I'll talk to you about choosing a proper turntable. Now, we've probably all heard the statistics about how not terribly long ago, for the first time since, what, 1990-something, vinyl sales have exceeded CD sales and all that, and vinyl is making a comeback. Well, first of all, no, vinyl is not making a comeback, quite simply because it never really went away. I cannot recall a time in which there wasn't a single new release available on vinyl. I mean, yeah, there are certain items, like, say, Retrospective box sets from various artists might only be available in CD, but I'm talking about, say, if you just want a single album. I just can't think of a time that of all music that was currently available, you could not get at least some of it on a brand new piece of vinyl. And also, one recent statistic I heard is that, supposedly, the number of people who own records is double the number of people who own turntables. And that's part of the reason I decided to talk about buying a turntable for this episode. Why would somebody buy a record without having an actual turntable? Well, there are a couple of reasons. For one thing, could be that a person intends to buy a turntable, but just wants to have that record right there. Hey, I bought my first ever CD before I actually owned a CD player. I just knew that eventually I would get one. So, hey, it's, why would it make any less sense for somebody to buy a record to anticipate buying a turntable, especially if that record is a limited edition copy. Also, it could be just a collector's piece, something you want to put on display. And there are the people who buy records as investment pieces. They hope to flip them and make a profit. Well, we're not going to talk about them right now. I'm going to focus more on the people who buy records with the hope of eventually getting a turntable. Now, as for what turntable I have, well, in our living room, Lisa and I have an Audio-Technica AT1240 USB XP, which was a little bit on the costly side, but I really don't like to cheap out on audio playback equipment. It's not the most expensive thing in the world, but it's also not the cheapest thing in the world. It's a three-speed turntable. It plays back at 33 and a third, 45 and 78 revolutions per minute, and there's a stroboscopic light, adjustable counterweight, built-in preamp, reverse play, USB connectivity, so if you want to do an easy audio recording, it's right there, and adjustable height and adjustable anti-skate. For most of the records I'll be talking about in this podcast, that's likely much more than you'd ever need to hear these records, but personally, I'm pretty happy with the unit. The sound is really good if the record is mastered properly and is in good shape and is cleaned up. The features are great. Also, it's a direct drive model. To me, personally, that's very important. Direct drive means that the platter and the spindle are attached directly to the motor, as opposed to belt drive turntables, in which essentially a rubber band controls the platter. Now, some people prefer belt-driven turntables because sometimes a direct drive turntable 
the vibration of the motor kind of sends a hum up through the tone arm and you might hear it if you turn the volume up loud enough. Personally, I have not heard that on either the current turntable I had or the one that we used to have, which was the Audio-Technica LP120. Both direct drive models never had that problem. But the reason I personally do not want a belt-driven turntable is that rubber bands stretch and break. Also, the LP1240 can be upgraded in various ways, including using a higher response stylus and cartridge and a stabilization puck. Well, then again, I think uh, most turntables can handle a stabilization puck. With some turntables, you're going to have to do a little bit of a setup. If you do get a turntable that requires setup, such as the Audio-Technica LP120 series or the LP1240 series, the good news is that it's usually pretty easy and only takes a couple of minutes. I'm not going to go step-by-step step into how to do that. There are numerous videos on YouTube on how to set up a turntable, but it's not hard at all. You might find yourself with a turntable that doesn't have any of those fancy features I mentioned, which is fine. It means, for one thing, that you don't need to do any setup. But no matter what, you want to make sure your turntable is on a level surface. So go into your toolbox, dig out a level, make sure that the platter is nice and even. Many turntables have adjustable feet, so if your turntable is not particularly level, you can just futz around with the feet until the platter is nice and level. If you're looking for a turntable but you don't need anything fancy, there's the Audio-Technica LP60. That should be good enough. It's a lot cheaper than the 1240 and the LP120, and as far as I'm aware, it doesn't require any special setup. It's belt-driven and is a two-speed model, 33 and 45. The LP60 is automatic, meaning that when the tone arm gets to the end of the record side, it's going to automatically lift and return to its home position. The other two models I mentioned, the LP1240 and the LP120, those are both manual, so you have to pick up the tone arm yourself. It may sound a little bit undesirable, but uh, I can think of one particular instance in which a uh, manual turntable is pretty cool, and that's when you're listening to a United Kingdom pressing of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band because you will hear its famous inner groove repeat over and over. A lot of automatic turntables actually lift off before it gets to that part. The LP60, it's pretty no frills, but from what I've heard from people who have it, plus my limited experience with it, it actually is a pretty good unit. It sounds really good. Now, you've heard me talk exclusively about Audio-Technica. I must say that I am not paid by Audio-Technica to say nice things about their products, although I am certainly willing to listen if they want to talk uh, paid ads or product placement. <laughs> After all, podcasting is time-consuming and it ain't cheap. But the reason I seem to be singling that brand out is simply because it's what I know. Truth be told, if I had a thousand bucks just burning a hole in my pocket, I would get something in the Technics SL1200 series, but I'm happy for what I have now, and some audiophiles are probably cringing right now because I said Technics instead of Techniques. Um, if you are cringing because of that, I got news for you. I've seen some commercials that pronounce it Techniques, and some that pronounce it Technics, so pick your poison. But one thing I can say about other brands, though, generally, portable turntables are not a good idea. They're not good for your records, especially those Crosley Cruiser units and those retro-looking Victrola models. It's pretty obvious why somebody would be drawn to getting a Crosley Cruiser or a Victrola model. Well, first of all, Victrola is a long-known name in turntables. It doesn't necessarily mean 
it's the best quality or good for your records. As for the Crosley Cruiser, well, there are plenty of videos you can watch on YouTube that explain why it's a bad model. Uh, I do know that Crosley has its own equivalent to, say, the Audio-Technica LP120 or the Technics SL1200 series, because it's kind of cloned off of those. But as for the Cruiser, please avoid that unless you really, really hate your records. The reason that I'm kind of disparaging the Crosley Cruiser and the Victrola turntables, although they look attractive, they look cute, they look quirky, they're not the best quality. The sound quality is typically pretty bad, and the tone arms are heavy and will damage your records much more quickly than most other units. I did some research, I talked to some record store owners, and the general consensus is that there's no such thing as a good quality portable turntable. But one proprietor I talked to said that there actually was one good portable turntable on the market, but good luck finding it. I don't remember what brand it was that he said, but I think it was one of those brands you'd see in the classrooms in the 70s and 80s. Generally, though, as a good rule, if you're turntable shopping and you see a turntable with a handle, do not buy it. Again, unless you really hate your records. And some uh, further advice I can give you when it comes to turntable shopping if you plan to play a lot of 12-inch records, that is, an album-sized record, get a turntable that is made for 12-inch records. I mean, yeah, you can play a 12-inch record on a turntable that has only a 7-inch platter, but the problem is the outer 2.5 inches of a 12-inch record will have nothing underneath supporting it, and the weight of the tone arm could and likely will gradually cause that record to warp. If you plan to play records whose playback speed is supposed to be 78 RPM, of course you want to make sure you get a turntable that supports that speed. If you're looking at an actual turntable but don't see the option for 78, check with the manufacturer. Case in point, the Technics SL1200 series and its clones, such as the Audio-Technica LP120, they do play back at 78, but there's no actual button to press that says 78. There's just one button for 33 and another for 45. To play back at 78, you actually press 33 and 45 at the same time. And of course, you're now probably noticing, whoa, 33 plus 45 equals 78. Go figure. Also, if the 78 RPM records you plan to play are the really super old-fashioned shellac records you are going to need a special stylus to play those with. If you use the same stylus that you use for your 33s and 45s, you will run a high risk of damaging both the stylus and the shellac record. There are 78 records out there that are pressed on standard microgroove vinyl, or sometimes even microgroove shellac. For those, you can use the same stylus that you use with your modern 33 and 45 RPM records. Oh, by the way, I quickly mentioned a preamp before. Turntables by nature have very low output, and so they need to be preamplified in order to be heard. If you're out shopping for a turntable, do some research and see if you also need to get a preamp. Some turntables have built-in preamps, and in fact, many audio receivers have built-in preamps too. For example, the Sony receiver that Lisa and I have has a set of inputs specifically for turntables. They're usually labeled phono on these uh, devices, by the way. Short for phonograph. 
On our receiver, those inputs labeled phono are actually pre-amplified, so we do not need a separate preamp. Uh, ergo, the built-in preamp on our LP1240 is turned off, unless we're recording from it over the USB cable, because to use the USB cable, you have to turn the preamp on. Do the research because you don't want to buy a turntable, get all excited about it, plug it in, and then discover you can't hear the thing. I could go on and get a little bit deeper about what to look for in a turntable or other record collecting tips, but that's not going to be the main point of this podcast. The point is to celebrate these crazy oddities that you happen upon from time to time. In episode one of this podcast, we're going to talk about an album released in the mid-60s by the Singing Johnson family of Southport, Indiana. It was the first weird record that I ever bought, so it's basically what started this all. Here's a spoiler alert. I have been struggling for years to learn about the Johnsons, so if anybody listening knows anything about the Singing Johnson family, please hit me up. My email address is myweirdrecords at fab4it.com. Fab4it is spelled F as in Foxtrot, A-B as in Bravo, then the number 4, and then I-T. And speaking of which, the webpage for this podcast is myweirdrecords.fab4it.com. My handle on both Twitter and Instagram is myweirdrecords, and this podcast is on Facebook as well. Either search for My Weird Record Collection, or go straight to facebook.com slash myweirdrecords. I offer a heartfelt thank you to my friend Kevin Zerb for designing the logo for this podcast. I will be back soon with episode one. In the meantime, please patronize your local record store. If you're not fortunate enough to have a local record store, then try to get out to where there is one and give it some love. Exaggerate your mouth movements. You can get an RCA record cleaning kit for about 1200 1200 but no, not that expensive. No, goodness, no.